We'll hear some different voices during this episode of You Can't Go Wrong. Diane Ward reads a story by Ruth Peterson. I'll have one of my stories, maybe two of my stories, and then we'll have Bob Noble uh, reading an op-ed piece by a man named John Jablonski who didn't like one of my stories. Women were the glue in the upstate mill towns. Women Working at Home by Ruth Peterson of Alplaus, a regular contributor to the Sunday Gazette in Schenectady. Bob Cudmore, the scribe who narrates events in the declining upstate city of Nero, describes a malaise of negativism gripping the place. Nefarious mill owners, unscrupulous politicians, and citizens fearful of exploitation seem bent on destroying this idyllic spot. Meanwhile, nearby in the very heart of Milltown, the lives of the wives of blue and white-collar workers have gone largely unrecorded. I would like to think about the tools they used in their everyday lives and mention the social dynamics at play in Milltown. In bygone days, the mill worker walked proudly off to work, carrying his lunch bucket, prepared earlier by his wife as she cooked his breakfast. It typically contained a pastrami, cheese or tuna fish sandwich, a huge dill pickle, and flaky tarts or homemade cookies, all carefully wrapped in waxed paper. A large thermos of hot coffee fit neatly in the lid of the bucket. If the breadwinner was one of the mill's managers, he might go home for lunch, or he might have had lunch at the Iroquois Inn, where sedate surroundings and fine food contributed to the sense of bonhomie necessary to transact business and entertain clients. This male bastion was also a fine place to stop in for a drink at the end of the day, when lesser working men might be dropping in their favorite pubs for a pint or two. Milltown wives were busy at home preparing the evening meal. The needs of her husband and children were paramount to Milltown women, who spent their days in Northtown or up the hill in Overlook or in the quiet leafy glade known as Milltown Mansions. The status of her husband dictated what she did with her time. Much camaraderie existed over the back fences of first- and second-generation immigrant families in Northtown and Overlook, the exchanging of recipes, health tips, child care advice mixed with friendly gossip. Other than this rich backfence life, neighborhood churches provided most of her social activity. Baptisms, confirmations, first communions, weddings, and funerals punctuated her life. A well-fed husband, a spotless house, and clean children provided her status. On wash day, women busied themselves with corrugated metal washboards, wash tubs, later the new ringer washers, and clotheslines strung in the yard or from an upstairs window. Wash day involved sorting the white and colored clothing separately, wringing them out, boiling, and applying the starch and bluing, and hanging successive loads of wash outside. When dry, shirts, dresses, and linens were dampened again for ironing. Before the advent of the electric iron, heavy flat irons were heated on the stove and used in rotation. Some wives made their own soap from wood ashes and lye. If there was a baby in the house, cloth diapers had to be scrubbed, boiled, and hung to dry. If baby formula was called for, it had to be mixed, poured into clean bottles with rubber nipples, and boiled. Pity the poor Milltown housewife who went to bed without an adequate supply of formula to see her through the night. Then there was the matter of window and floor coverings. 
Depending on neighborhood and custom, window treatment might include white shears, lace curtains, heavy winter drapes, and lighter summer curtains often made at home. The good housewife used curtain stretchers for her shear and lace curtains, including a rectangular standing device with pins all the way around on which she stretched her curtains to the appropriate size. Heavy drapes were hung on the line and beaten. Cotton drapes were washed, starched, ironed, and rehung. Floors demanded a great deal of the Milltown wife's time. Wood floors had to be mopped, oiled, or waxed. Linoleum floors in kitchens and sometimes throughout the house demanded scrubbing on hands and knees with a scrub brush and a pail of hot sudsy water. Then they were waxed and buffed. If the family prospered, carpets were added and had to be cleaned either with a stiff broom or taken outside on a line and beaten with a metal rug beater or at a later date vacuum with a new Hoover vacuum cleaner. Many wives had large vegetable gardens, fruit trees, and grapevines. As vegetables ripen, she brought her huge canner up from the cellar. This was fitted with a circular wire mesh rack to hold the jars and handles to lift the steaming contents from the hot water. First, she washed the jars, lids, and rings. Then prepared the beans, tomatoes, peas, corn, carrots, beets, squash, and pumpkins for canning. She might also make pickles, relish, tomato juice. Chili sauce, spaghetti sauce, and jams, jellies, chutney, and conserve. In the fall, she made applesauce, apple butter, and cider. She might also buy peaches and pears by the bushel to can. Basement shelves were loaded with her handiwork. When the grapes ripened, in addition to making jelly, she might help her husband in the making of wine. Other women gathered dandelions from open fields to use in dandelion wine. What of the women whose husbands rose to higher levels of management and who lived in milltown mansions? Her work was less physically demanding because her husband could afford household help—perhaps a housekeeper, a maid, dressmaker, cleaning woman, even a yardman. But there were exacting demands placed upon her too. Her appearance was important, so she had to acquire a tasteful wardrobe. She was expected to entertain, and here she could display her gift for creating comfort and beauty with perfectly appointed linens, glassware, china flower arrangements, and food impeccably prepared and served. Her social graces were put to use choosing and seating guests appropriately, introducing table conversation, and providing an atmosphere that reflected well on her husband and his status at the mill. With few exceptions, she didn't work outside the home or display her talents in other public ways. Although she might be highly educated, she was encouraged to join her peers in book clubs, garden clubs, bridge clubs, music clubs, and milltown wives clubs. In furthering their husbands' careers, most could have signed an oath to the mill similar to the Boy Scout oath, with particular attention to loyal. Like their husbands, milltown wives could be ambitious, lazy, brave, timid, kind, cruel, modest, or self-serving. Would the mills have prospered without the wives of Northtown, Overlook, and Milltown mansions? Maybe, but without the domestic comforts provided by women, it might have more closely resembled the gold rush and logging camps of the Wild West. New York Times religion writer Peter Steinfels claims social, communal, and moral resources hold a society together and make it productive. I would propose that the Milltown women provided many of the resources that contributed to the health and welfare of this once prosperous giant. Women's work in Nero: assigning blame is an ongoing process.
Assigning blame is an ongoing process in Nero. Some blame the unions for a long strike decades ago, which preceded the wholesale departure of the sock industry to warmer climes. Others blame the industrialists who were lured south by cheap labor and tax breaks. Old-timers blame the new immigrants for current problems with crime, drugs, and welfare dependency. Newcomers blame the old guard for refusing to give up any significant piece of the old order. Determining fault is so ingrained that one of the greatest compliments in Nero is the following choice of words. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Occasionally, I don't blame you justifies having fun. If you have a few drinks after either getting promoted or fired, skip work and go to the track when four-star Dave is in attendance, or let the lawn go long and sleep in a hammock on a summer afternoon, a friend of yours, if not your spouse, might say, I don't blame you. There are limits, of course, and Neuroites know that continued pursuit of good times can result in condemnation. You are most properly told, I don't blame you, when it's obvious you've come to the end of your rope, and although what you're doing may not be pleasant or kind, you're doing what you have to do. You would say, I don't blame you, to a woman leaving her abusive husband or a hard-pressed family filing for a tax abatement. If you'd been at happy hour at the Four Clover Tavern in Nero last week, you would have heard Wanda Tamburino bestow an I don't blame you in absentia on Gazette contributor Ruth Peterson for Ms. Peterson's column praising the hard work and civilizing influences that women have brought to upstate New York's mill towns. Wanda said, referring to me and quoting Ms. Peterson, You dwell on the nefarious, unscrupulous, and the fearful. Based on my experiences, Bob, I can't blame you either, although you should write about women more often. Well connected in two ethnic communities, Wanda is the constituent problem fixer for Nero's popular congressman, and she knows Nero's negativity at first hand. She's heard many tales of woe, some of which are even true. Miss Peterson's account of the lunch-making, clothes-washing, stay-at-home women whose husbands worked in the mills was right on the mark, according to Wanda. Wanda said, Sometimes it was a race to see whether the local tavern owner or the housewife would get the week's paycheck in the old days. My grandfather was a hard-working soul, never missed a day of work in his life. Every Friday, he took a good part of his pay and went out to get a pack of cigarettes and a beer. We usually didn't see him again until Sunday, when he returned with cuts and bruises from his weekend jaunt. In terms of the contribution of women in Nero, Wanda continued, keep in mind that many women worked in the mills and even claimed their own seats at the taverns after work. Women are better at many factory jobs, if you ask me, and the mill owners must have thought the same thing because they hired quite a few women, usually paying them less than the men. I had a job in a clothing factory right out of high school, Wanda said. This mill was one of those sweatshops that came to Nero after the sock industry went south. One night, while staring at the work as it went by in my machine, I fell asleep. My job was to watch fabric being made, looking for any imperfections that would mean I'd have to stop the equipment. It wasn't rocket science, but it was exacting, tedious, and draining. The machine made an awful noise. Working in that sweatshop was like being hypnotized in hell. When I woke up, I had no idea if the fabric which had gone by was good, bad, or indifferent. Maybe a guy would have let it go, but I told the foreman. They docked my pay. That night, I decided to go to college and get a different kind of job. My mother wasn't pleased. The women in my family had always raised kids, worked in the mills, or both. It was my older sister, who worked the night shift in a squirt gun factory while raising her family, who said she couldn't blame me. There are some things I don't like about my current job, but I'm sure that leaving that mill when I did was the best decision I ever made. If you tear it down, will they come? A Nero fire attracts the gawkers.
There's usually a bad fire each winter in Nero that provides copy for the local paper and creates a temporary tourist attraction. In February of this year, a terrible blaze took several lives and one more street gained a hole where a house used to be. For weeks after the fire, an impromptu parade of cars slowly passed the burned-out building and the makeshift memorials in the snow and ice. Some motorists tried to make it seem as if they were simply driving from here to there as they gawked at the fire scene. Truthfully, few people normally travel that street, which contains one remaining business and about a dozen houses, two or three of them with for-sale-by-owner signs. It's not the worst neighborhood in the city, although it's not the best neighborhood either. Winter is not a pretty season in Nero, even on streets that have not had a fire. Ugly banks of dirty snow line the main streets. Even downtown sidewalks have stretches of ice long after the snow has been cleared from the roads because so many homes and businesses are abandoned. But the sun shone brilliantly in early February, lifting the spirits of the residents, even those who were saddened by the losses from the fire. The bright sunlight was a wonderful tonic in the midst of the drab upstate winter. It made success seem attainable, and Nero's people, at least momentarily, felt spring's optimism in their hearts. Maybe that's why people in Nero read with interest the news stories about the plan to tear down homes near Schenectady State Street to attract an industrial park to the Electric City. Some Neroites are ready to support this concept for their own city, the former sock-making capital of the world, where so many people are on one form of government aid or another that some think Nero should be renamed Government Check. One caller told host Mike Van Wilson on the WNRO talk show The NeverEnding Argument, If tearing down houses to attract industry can be considered in Schenectady, just tear down that whole neighborhood where the fire was, move the people somewhere else, get a factory built, and Mike will be ahead of the game. Mike shot back, I'm outraged you think that. Next thing you know, you'll be forgiving the president with the rest of the people in this loony country. Why should we tear down any more buildings in Nero? We already lose a bunch of buildings to ordinary fires every year, and once in a while some big blaze knocks out half an acre or something. The caller replied, but Mike, these holes around town are too scattered. What we need is to get rid of three, four, five blocks of these down-and-out houses, attract some industry, get us some jobs. Mike shot back. Are you saying we don't have enough empty lots in one place in this falling-down city? You are out of your mind! He shouted the last two sentences, knowing that soundbite would make a good promo for the next day's show. Mike makes sense here to me, although I usually don't go along with his angrily-voiced right-wing opinions, especially all the terrible things he said about the president. In this case, as Mike pointed out, empty lots and empty factory buildings litter the landscape in Nero. There's a 1960s-era industrial park right outside town that's only a quarter occupied. I don't know about Schenectady, but Nero's problem does not appear to be a lack of space in the city for industry, but a lack of industry for the city's available space. Native Sons Can Be Mean by B. John Jablonski. A columnist for the Recorder of Amsterdam, Mr. Jablonski was greatly offended by the article you have just heard. Here is Mr. Jablonski's rebuttal to the negativity of Nero, as read by Bob Noble. Perhaps I am reading too much into it, or, again, I may simply be putting the wrong spin on it. Nevertheless, I was deeply disturbed after reading it. The it I refer to is an article in the opinion section of an out-of-town newspaper. The piece refers to Nero, a mythical mill town in upstate New York. The writing, in a veiled way, is a portrait of our city of Amsterdam. Other than belaboring the theme that our once-bustling industries have left us, and we are a town of citizens with our hands out waiting for the dole, not much else is said. 
The flippant attitude of the narrative is what bothers me. If this composition had been written by some stranger, it would not cut as deeply, but, on the contrary, it was written by a native son. The ache is more acute because of this. Describing this supposedly mythical town is the statement, in a regular Nero midwinter ritual, an impromptu parade of cars passed by the burnt-out building and makeshift memorials. It seems to me as if the writer thinks it odd that people would want to see and show respect at the scene where a catastrophe had occurred. Isn't this done in every town that suffers a tragic loss? Is it necessary to describe these sympathizers as gawkers? Why not mention the heroic efforts of the fire department that contained the inferno to a minimum of damage? The story goes on to say, the former sock capital of the world where so many people are in one form of government aid or another. Some think Nero should be renamed Government Check. Well, this is the lowest degrading remark of all. A slap in the face to a town that is utilizing all means possible to maintain a safe and friendly environment for its elderly and young. Are not taxes being sent to the seats of government by our citizens, as well as those from other localities? Are we not entitled to receive at least a portion of this back as aid when it is needed? The affluent, who have used and milked our city till there was little left to pick over, have gone on to greener pastures. So has the author of the story I refer to. It has been left to the citizens remaining here to rebuild a new community from the residue. As a former native son, who now roams the more verdant pastures, the essayist no longer remembers the benefits he received from his neighbors. He forgets those who gave of themselves and their time so he, as a young lad, would have the benefits of various activities to broaden his mind. There is no mention of the ones who taught him the skills necessary to be successful in life. No acknowledgment to mentors who nurtured his career in broadcasting at our small-town radio station. He doesn't live here anymore. He can only bring it to mind in a disparaging mythical story of Nero. It would appear that he sees Amsterdam as a town of abandoned homes and businesses where, in his words, quote, busy sidewalks have long stretches of ice long after the snow has been cleared from the roads, unquote. There was no mention of the projects aimed at revitalizing East Main Street. Where is the mention of the new immigrants to our city who settle here and take menial jobs at low wages just for the opportunity to become part of it? Those start out in the low-cost areas of town and build their futures from there. His research did not dig deep enough to give credit to our police department and their diligent efforts to keep the city a safe place to live and raise a family. The columnist did not turn the page in the same paper, the same day his commentary appeared, to read where Aaron M. Harzinski, the city of Amsterdam's community development and grants assistant, stated that, quote, expanding an already successful industrial park makes sense, unquote. This was included in a near full-page story describing how the industrial park is challenged to make additional room for businesses investigating the possibilities of setting up shop in the area. His description of the park states, and again I quote, There is a 1960s-era industrial park right outside town that is only one quarter occupied, unquote. There was no mention that, in reality, the park will have to hang out a no-vacancy sign next month because all existing structures are filled to capacity. Any recognition to our city planners for their efforts and success in filling the park was nowhere to be found in his tale of Nero. I personally am an adopted son of our town, 
I was first introduced to the area in 1948, 50 years ago this coming June. I have lived here in years of plenty and suffered with the rest of the citizenry in times of want. I built my home here, have raised my family here, and someday will be laid to rest here. I do not dream of having lived my life differently or wishing to have been elsewhere. I've witnessed the arrogance of many as they spoke of our tired old mill town, but I have seen and admired what others may have missed, the resolve of our people to pick themselves up time after time, dust themselves off, and begin rebuilding all over again. These are the people I write of with enthusiasm, those with faith, courage, and optimism. Call me a Pollyanna if you must, but it is the things I mention that lead to success and the achievement of goals. Not giving voice to this is a dereliction of duty. A native son attempting to impress others with his mythical story of despondency, accentuating the negative, and little or nothing of the positive, may make the story disheartening to read and an injustice to our community. Cheap shots may be expected from strangers, but like Julius Caesar, I can only say, at two, Bob Cudmore? Ouch! I hope you enjoyed Episode 7 of You Can't Go Wrong. Episode 8 will be one you'll enjoy just as much.